Welcome to a special Daily Journal podcast episode. I'm Brian Cardell, host of the Weekly Appellate Report, and this is the first edition of a new series we'll hope to bring you with some regularity going forward. The series is called Let's Talk About Something Else, and we'll feature two legal experts. First, District Judge James Donato, who has sat on the Northern District of California bench since 2014, and before that was a veteran of private practice in the Bay Area with Cooley LLP and Shearman and Sterling. Also on the program is former U.S. Ambassador to Australia and former Special Counsel to President Barack Obama and current partner with the Denton's Law Firm in San Francisco, Jeff Bleich. The pair will provide a fresh look and new, often contrasting perspectives on legal events of the day. In today's episode, as the Supreme Court begins a new term while continuing to await its new ninth member, Judge Donato and Ambassador Bleich will consider just what to make of the confirmation gauntlet in which Judge Brett Kavanaugh remains. They'll debate what standard might best be applied in weighing the sexual assault allegations against Kavanaugh and how, whichever way it turns out, this grueling political fight will impact both the high court, the nominee, and any future nominees. Without any further preamble then, I'll turn it over to Judge Donato and Ambassador Bleich. Hi, I'm Jeff Bleich, former United States Ambassador. And I'm Jim Donato, a sitting federal judge in San Francisco. And this is the debut episode of Let's Talk About Something Else. Jeff, welcome to October 1st. You know what today is? It's the day before the start of the Supreme Court term. And what does that mean we're going to be discussing today? Well, I think uh, we'll probably be the only people discussing the Supreme Court in America. It seems to fall off people's radar screen. I feel like we're the last two (laughs) who give any attention to this issue. Yeah, well, it, it, it deserves this attention and uh, and hopefully we can add something new to the debate. Well, we've had a big week so far, and we have another big week coming up. What do you think about the FBI investigation? Is that going to move anybody? Well, it depends on the FBI investigation. I used to review FBI investigations when I worked at the White House uh, for these sorts of uh, appointments, and so I have a pretty good sense of what's contained in them. And I think we, let me just I think we need to clarify that because not everybody has gone through a confirmation process. So there are FBI reports and then there are FBI reports. You know what I mean? <laughs> what, what's the difference? Yeah. So there's a basic background check, which is performed by the FBI. And then if a certain issue arises that could be politically sensitive, uh, then in general, we'll ask the FBI to do a further investigation on that issue. And that investigation tends to give you a detailed assessment of what various people say and what they're able to cross-reference with you know, other objective facts that exist. And then, and then they don't give you a conclusion about who's telling the truth and who isn't. But they do give you a sense of where there are some significant inconsistencies and causes for concern. I think maybe we could see them as uh, they're sort of like truth meters. Who is likely to be saying the right thing or the truthful thing and who may be making something up? Yeah, well, at least what they will give you is a sense that this statement was corroborated in three different places. But this fact was contradicted by two independent sources, um, both of whom had a clear memory of the events in other aspects of their interview. So I think that's the kind of information that you get. 
And it can be very compelling depending on how precise the investigation is and who they talk to and how uh, far they investigate. Let me ask you this. Now, this was this whole process, the whole Kavanaugh confirmation hearing process has been, not surprisingly, the fodder for late night TV and many of the comics who are on TV. And the gist of the routines are, you know, when you're at a job interview, which this confirmation hearing is kind of like, not strictly speaking, but when you're at a job interview and things come up like, do you drink to excess and have you been involved in sexual harassment charges? You're typically not going to get a job at the end of that. Now, in a situation <laughs> yes. like now who, now, who knows how this is going to come out? But the, 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 the point I'm struggling to make is, I think a lot of people are wondering, by the very fact that we're even asking these questions, is it is it too late to have someone who is the subject of those questions, like Judge Kavanaugh, even be considered? Well, that is a real question, because, again, in this case, the president said he was reviewing a list of 25 extraordinarily well-qualified candidates, in his opinion, uh, many of whom he would be very, very happy to appoint to the bench. And so the question is, why would you proceed with a candidate who is under this cloud? Uh, A credible witness has come forward. A number of people on the Senate confirmation uh, committee yeah, Judiciary Committee, had said that she seemed credible. And um, she's come forward with a very serious charge. And the question is, why would you proceed with that candidate when you've got several others who would be, in your opinion, fully qualified to do the job? Well, now, I hear that. Uh, but I think a lot of people might say in response to that, well, hold on. I mean, these are charges. They're not, they're not proven charges. They're not facts and evidence. Doesn't that give a little too much uh, weight and power, frankly, to the people who can say whatever they choose to say? Alan Dershowitz, for example, today in the Wall Street Journal ran an article saying, in his view, this is a new form of, uh, I think he called it uh, sexual McCarthyism, or some McCarthyism of some sort, meaning, as you know, the mere allegation is enough to tar and feather someone to the point where their future is over or their job prospects are over. Well, whenever people invoke McCarthy or Hitler, it's usually a sign that they're trying to make a point and they can't quite make it without going there. Well, what um, let me make the point for him because I, I, I get it. I'm not embracing it, but I get it. He's saying, you know, um, we do have a fact-finding obligation. There are due process elements. There are fairness and justice elements. He's a lawyer. You're a lawyer. I'm a judge. We're all very familiar with that. And we embrace that. There's just no question. People are, are given that due. But this is not a criminal trial. This is not a case being litigated. This is really uh, the Judiciary Committee giving its advice and consent and the Senate giving its advice and consent on whether this is the right person uh, to be put in a position of tremendous responsibility and authority. So is it that wrong to uh, indulge in uh, a wide-ranging truth inquiry when charges like this come up? I think the first, you've got people who are taking huge risks by going before this committee and giving this testimony. The notion that this is something that could be easily, lightly done by any citizen to throw a monkey wrench in a confirmation for political purposes ignores the fact that all this testimony is given under penalty of perjury, that it is a felony. 
And not only could you go to jail for it, but your reputation and life will be forever damaged and changed by this. So it's not as though you can casually go in and derail a confirmation. I think the second thing is, this is a confirmation process. It isn't a court of law. You're right. And that means that you're, yeah, they're, they're, this isn't about your freedom or your ability to do your job. If he's not confirmed, all it means is he continues on as a D.C. Circuit judge. Well, let me, let me pause on that. So far, you've been very smooth and rational. I'm taken aback. <laughs> but I do have to jump in on that point. Now, let's just, let's, just, let's just look at that for a moment. Right. If he's not, con- if this goes to a vote and he is not confirmed, in other words, a majority of the Senate votes against confirmation, based on what we've heard so far from Dr. Ford and whatever the FBI comes up with, how do you go back to the D.C. Circuit? I, I have been wondering this. How-, how do you go back to that position and as if nothing ever happened? Well, Justice Douglas Ginsburg was nominated for the U.S. Supreme Court and was denied in part because there were allegations that he had smoked marijuana with his students at Harvard Law School. And he went back and continued to have a distinguished career on the D.C. Circuit. Okay, you had but, that, other... but, 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 you know, lighting up a bowl, if I may be, uh, if I may reach out to the youngsters in the audience and... <laughs> And, you yes, know, bond, you sound very hip. bond in the way that I'm known to bond with the millennials and others. That's a that's a, that's very different from uh, the charges that have been levied against Judge Kavanaugh, and, I, and and his and I think Judge Kavanaugh's response to those charges has been very different from what Judge Ginsburg did. If I recall, Judge Ginsburg took himself out of the running fairly promptly after this issue surfaced. But I don't recall him going to the committee and seeing the kind of performance from him that we saw from Judge Kavanaugh last Thursday. Uh, yeah, that's a fair point. But being denied a position, a, a, a discretionary appointment by the President of the United States, subject to the advice and consent of the Senate, is, uh, is not the same as someone concluding that you did what you were accused of. It's just a judgment, ultimately, that you aren't the best suited person to be appointed to this position at this time. And there have been a number of people withdrawn over the last number of years. You know, you remember Harriet Myers and Alberto Gonzalez. They were both nominees from George W. Bush. Both of them withdrew their names uh, because there was just a sense that they weren't quite the right fit for what... The Senate was looking for, and they weren't getting the public support that they were but looking for. But I, yes, that's right. But don't, I mean, to say uh, in Ms. Meyer's case, for example, she'd never really practiced as a lawyer. She had no prior judicial experience. Uh, I'm not at all saying that uh, she was or wasn't fit for the job, but that just isn't the background that um, e- even uh, edgier candidates of the Supreme Court have had. She just didn't have that background. This is a this is different by a country mile. This is a man who's been accused of um, a uh, you know sexual related crime, effectively, mm-hmm. uh, or at least uh, a, a crime of physical force with respect to women. Uh, and um, to me, that carries a lot more freight when someone says, "I'm not going to approve you because of that," than it does 
because we think you're just not up to the job for qualifications reasons or some other reason. Well, he's been accused of more in light of this hearing because, yes, the, the, the most serious cloud hanging over his confirmation are these allegations of sexual assault. But after the hearing, if the, most people were troubled by new things as well. There were concerns about his candor, whether he was truthful about little things, uh, everything from uh, whether he drank to the point where he was stumbling uh, to what devil's triangle means and things like that, uh, whether he just wasn't being candid with the tribunal. There were questions about temperament, whether or not, you know, talking over senators uh, being what, what appeared to be belligerent uh, is appropriate demeanor for someone who's doing a job interview with the with Senate. And, and I think there was just a concern about partisanship, invoking the name of the Clintons and all those other things that he said. I, I think that if he's not confirmed or if his name were withdrawn, it wouldn't necessarily be a reflection on a judgment about whether he did or didn't commit a sexual assault. It could be any one of those factors or some combination of them. Yes, but I think in fairness, nobody would say any of those factors are a plus to have associated with you, uh, particularly if you are a sitting judge, as he is. So in your view, you really think it will be uh, kind of a no harm, no foul, back to business Monday morning on the D.C. Circuit kind of a day if, if Judge Kavanaugh does not get confirmed? Oh no! And look, I mean, for what if you just? I mean, uh, what what that that circuit yeah. uh, by statute uh, and by locale often gets some of the uh, biggest statutory interpretation cases. In other words, when Congress has passed a law and someone has challenged either the constitutionality of it or whether it had been adopted properly and so on, does tend to go to the D.C. Circuit now. Uh, some people would say that that introduces a, a bias concern because uh, in the view of many people, uh, Judge Kavanaugh on Thursday of last week uh, painted the Democrats in pretty broad brush as uh, a party out to get him. Now, what are you going to do if you're a litigant and uh, a Democratic centerpiece Democratic legislative bill that's been passed by Congress and signed by the president comes up, the Affordable Care Act? Everyone agrees that was a, a capstone of the Democratic Obama administration. What do you do when Judge Kavanaugh is on your panel as a litigant? What would you do? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. But that is true regardless of whether he's on the Supreme Court or whether he's on the D.C. Circuit. There would still be the opportunity for a lawyer for a party appearing before either court to say they think that he should recuse himself. When I clerked for Judge Mikva, uh, he was on the D.C. Circuit. On the D.C. Circuit, we had a case involving uh, RICO, which is a federal um, uh, anti-conspiracy act. It's the law directed <laughs> to my people, <laughs> yes. the Sicilians. Well, uh, he had given a speech on the floor of the um, of Congress when he was a member of Congress, in which he had said RICO could be interpreted to do all these terrible things, and he gave a parade of horribles. And the well, was he speaking against the racketeering statute? Yes. Oh, he was. Yes. He opposed it. Yes. Okay. Uh, on the on the floor, and then when there was a hearing, mm -hmm. he had those statements raised against him, and the question was whether or not he could fairly um, uh, consider the implications of this law when he had prejudged how it would be interpreted and what its constitutional meaning would be. 
uh, whether it was constitutional at all. And so he he did recuse himself in that case. Um, it's not unusual for people to re-recused if they have made these statements. He felt that he could decide that case without partisanship, but the ethics codes are higher than that. It's the appearance of impropriety. And he thought there would could potentially be an appearance of impropriety, even though he was convinced that he would assess this on the merits and so recused himself. And, and good judges will do that because, as you say, the, really the, 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 the test is, of course, actual bias. And, but, but even more so, you don't want any party to think, reasonably think. It can't be crazy thinking, but you don't want any party to reasonably think you've already come up with the decision in your mind before you've seen the evidence or heard the argument. So it is the appearance that matters. And good judges will embrace that and say, I know I'm not biased. I know I can decide this case just like any other judge, but I know that these parties, for whatever reason that's, that's reasonable and legitimate, may find otherwise. Here is the difference. Those canons of judicial ethics bind me and all the district judges and all of the circuit judges. They do not bind the justices of the Supreme Court. Those justices are, in fact, exempt from the judicial canons that every other federal judge has to live up to. This is an issue because... Uh, no justice on the, on the Supreme Court is required to disqualify himself or herself or even give the time of day to someone who suggests that you might need to disqualify yourself. And I think you know, as a former Supreme Court clerk, and I certainly strongly suspect it is a rare day when a litigant is going to tell one of nine judges, you should not hear this case. Yeah. And, and even more so when they would recuse themselves voluntarily. And you make a very good point. I clerked for Chief Justice Rehnquist. So I, I've, I've clerked on both sides of the political spectrum, a very liberal judge on D.C. Circuit and very conservative judge on the Supreme Court. And he had a case come before him from a law firm where his son worked. And his son had done some other work for that same party that was now appearing uh, in the Supreme Court. And he assessed for himself that notwithstanding the fact that he loved his son and that his son's firm might make more money if, you know, their firm was successful, that that did not create an appearance of impropriety, that he could still be impartial and, um, and that he didn't have to worry about the appearance. And so you're exactly right. Whether he's on the D.C. circuit under a more stringent ethical standard or on the Supreme Court does make a difference. So what do you think the echo effect is for the court as an institution if um, someone in Judge Kavanaugh's circumstances gets seated? Well, you know, we, we've had an experience a little bit like this when Clarence Thomas was appointed 27 years ago. And there was a sense that he would be somehow limited as a, as a justice, that there would be somehow an asterisk next to him, that uh, he had won a hotly contested, very bitter confirmation uh, by a small number of votes, and many people considered his appointment um, illegitimate in their in their minds, um, and that that would somehow damage him. But the way the Supreme Court works is doesn't matter how many votes you were confirmed by or how people felt at the time of your confirmation, you still have the same vote that you would have had otherwise of the nine justices. Um, and so I think that there would be the same kind of feelings, the same kind of um, partisan um, uh, lingering resentments uh, 
if he were appointed, but it wouldn't change his ability to um, shape the future of the court in terms of his the votes he casts and the opinions he writes. I think what, what troubles me, and I know troubles others as well, but particularly me as a sitting judge, is uh, regardless of what happens in these specific circumstances, I think we run this tremendous dangerous risk of promoting, in my view, the erroneous view that judges are just politicians in black robes. I mean, I think people who don't interact with judges and lawyers the way that you and I do can come away from this thinking it is all just politics mm -hmm. because judges are all just politicians. And that's wrong. It, it, is, it is wrong. I will tell you as a sitting judge, personally, and of every judge I know, we follow the law to the best of our abilities. And I am convinced uh, the Supreme Court justices do too. If the Constitution is clear or a statute is clear, they follow it. They may not like it, but they follow it. Is there room for judgment calls? Of course. That's why we have judges. If it were binary, we wouldn't need anybody to make a decision. You'd feed it into a computer and it would spit mm -hmm. out an answer. So there is, of course, obviously a judgment aspect. But even there, we all work hard as consciously as we can to overcome any uh, political leanings or tendencies that we may have. And the sad thing is that message and that hard work gets washed away when the court is perceived in situations like this as being just another ward meeting for Democratic or Republican operatives. Yeah. Don't you think? I no, mean, I, I, I absolutely agree. And if you look at the history of the court, some of the most important decisions, some of the decisions that have divided the country um, were, were, were not decided along partisan lines. So, for example, Roe versus Wade was written by Justice Harry Blackman, who was a Republican appointee. He was a Nixon appointee. Um, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, the one which held that um, uh, segregated schools were unconstitutional, was written by Earl Warren, a Republican appointed, um, uh, you know, he was an Eisenhower appointee. A Republican appointed chief justice. And a Republican governor of California. Yes. And who voted for Brown v. Board of Education? What other justice? No, Hugo Black, who had been a member of the Klan. A member of the Klan. Yes. So the notion that people bring their political leanings, their partisan leanings to the court and then are fixed just hasn't been true throughout our history. And to the extent that we are... Um, Picking people because of their politics or assuming that the court will always behave according to political partisan interests, uh, we're, we're underestimating the court and we're degrading the court and we shouldn't do it. And, and we're, we're doing a disservice to the individuals who have chosen a life of service. I mean, look, for example, at Justice Souter. Uh, right. oh, actually, let's go back to Earl Warren. That's a good mm -hmm. choice. I, if, I'm, if I'm recalling correctly... Uh, Ike Eisenhower at one point said something along the lines of, that was the biggest damn mistake I ever, <laughs> I ever made. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. Well. Okay. And why is that? Because uh, Earl Warren turned out to be a man who took his oath of office seriously and followed the law wherever it led him. And that's how he came out. David Souter is another good example of that. I think a George H.W. Bush appointee. Uh, people are not beholden to the parties that nominate them. And it's, it's, it's disheartening for all of us to see uh, this constant stream of misinformation which suggests that that is not true. <laughs> no, absolutely right. John Paul Stevens, another Republican appointee, ended up 
being one of the one of the moderates on the court, uh, uh, Anthony Kennedy, the person who Justice, uh, yeah, who Judge Kavanaugh uh, would replace, uh, was also someone who was considered a, a a reliable conservative, and yet he ended up being at the center of the court, uh, considered by many to be a moderate, and was one of three justices who. Um, preserved Roe versus Wade when people thought it was going to be overruled, you know, nearly 20 years ago. So the word broken gets used a lot mm-hmm. talking about confirmation hearings, particularly at the Supreme Court level. Nobody likes them. Yeah. Nobody is happy with them. <laughs> there isn't one person. I think this, in fact, the one thing we can all agree on is that we hate this. Yeah. This is a bad way to pick a justice. Everybody agrees yeah. on that. You could you could have a beer with anybody mm-hmm. over that point. I think that's right. right? Okay. <laughs> we, so how how do we agreement. how do we fix that? Um, one idea that I have heard that I think bears some discussing is maybe lifetime appointment is too big of a of a stake. Maybe there ought to be what is effectively a, a one time limited term for justices or all judges on the federal bench. What do you think about that? I actually like that idea, and uh, right now the United States is the only democracy in the world that has lifetime appointments. Uh, and and I think well, well, the British do, don't they? No, apparently not. Oh, Britain's not a democracy. Is that what you're saying, <laughs> Mr. Yeah. Former Ambassador? So my understanding is, and 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 if I'm wrong, someone can Google this and and, I think and I correct just did. me. <laughs> but I think they I think we're the only ones with a lifetime appointment. And, and, and it's not necessary. You could easily have an 18-year appointment, and that would ensure an independence from whoever appointed you and from the political passions of the day when you were appointed. Um, but it wouldn't be something where we keep looking for younger and younger people so that we can have a 50-year legacy or 40-year legacy on the court. Um, and we would also eliminate some of the problems that you have with people just staying on too long and we've we've got some sad examples of justices who stayed well beyond the time when they were truly contributing to the work of the court please name one (laughs) well i you know even even some good ones like uh oliver wendell holmes Uh, if if you read a you know his biography uh, eventually the other justices had to tell him it was time for him to step away he was he was falling asleep during arguments. He just was not uh, capable of doing the work that he was that he once did. I think I think that actually applies to um, the judiciary, federal judiciary as a whole. Uh, right now, for example, and I'm not talking about any particular judge. There are plenty of judges, but you have them in mind, don't no, you? No, <laughs> I don't. There are plenty of judges. I have them in mind. There are plenty of judges who do tremendous work after the age of eighty. However. Uh, a question can be asked, is it appropriate when uh, almost 20 percent, the last time I looked this was true, almost 20 percent of the federal judges in this country are over the age of 80. Wow. Now, there's nothing wrong in a number. I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. But there is an idea that you've had a long run on the bench. Maybe it's someone else's turn. Maybe someone who is a little more uh, connected to the world as it is rather than the world as it was. I would be happy as a sitting judge to subscribe to a some type of limit, uh, 20 years or age of 80 or some combination of the two. 
Yeah. Um, I think it's particularly important, though, on the Supreme Court, because if we really want to depoliticize this, we could structure this in a way that every four years there would be more or less one appointment. In other words, every president would get one appointment. If you do that, and if you have that, you know, the usual back and forth between who's in the White House, you're pretty much guaranteed to have a balanced court. Don't you think? I mean, yeah, no, I, I, I like that idea. And you, you could have limited terms um, so that it's an 18-year term. And let's say someone... Can I leaves- suggest a multiple of four because <laughs> the president serves for four years? Yeah, um, yeah maybe, maybe you get two, two 18-year terms. That's what I was thinking per presidency. 30? Oh, I mean, not per person. 36 years per person? Or 18 years total per person? No, one 18-year one term. Yeah, one 18. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and each oh, president, each president gets two. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. And uh, if the person leaves before 18 years expires, someone else can be appointed to complete their term. Maybe could be reappointed for a second term, but that would be it. Why uh, reappointment? Wouldn't that kind of defeat the whole thing? Yeah. Well, only if they were filling out someone else's term. Oh, I see. But we don't okay. have to get that detailed about it. Huh? I think your point is exactly right. To, to me... One of the issues, and you and that was and a little dismissive. We were just sort of looking at the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to be dismissive. Well, yeah. hey, here's 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 I, the, you made another good point. I wanted to pick up. On, oh, which okay. Is, now you're going overboard. Yeah, there are. Um, yeah, there's no one on the court right now who grew up at a time um, when when computers were just part of your basic life skills. Right. People who are in their 30s today, they have, you know, they, I mean, they are, they're just so comfortable with a digital society in a way that someone who is 70 or 80, no matter how much they've tried to keep up, they just, they, they aren't digital natives. And as we're going through this massive disruption, you start to appreciate the importance of having folks in those roles on the courts turning over on a relatively regular basis once, you know, every generation. Um, because things change dramatically in one generation. And, and, and that, that's a, a, a tremendous point on one of our hot-button issues, privacy. You know, the generation that, that is called, as you say, the digital native generation, has a very different sense of what's public and what's private than people like you, born, <laughs> born in the late... Uh, you know, what were the 30s? Yes, exactly. They look good. <laughs> you, but you see what I'm saying? They have an entirely different conception. So what? why does that matter? Well, it matters for Fourth Amendment purposes. Right. Because the definition of, a, you know, the reasonableness of uh, government intrusion uh, into your privacy depends on what we think is legitimately private or not. Yeah. Uh, there was a time when, uh, before Griswold v. Connecticut came out, it was considered wrong for the government to... Um, uh, allow women to uh, pursue birth control because that supposedly interfered with the privacy of the relationship between a husband and a wife. Everybody thinks today, because these are evolving notions, that's not a position that we're willing to embrace. Mm-hmm. Now, I would guarantee you, I uh, guarantee you that <laughs> the generation behind us, our kids' generation, our kids are in their late teens, early 20s, have a very different sense of when it's appropriate or not to, uh, for a government entity to look into your private life than we do. Yeah. Because they've grown up in a different environment where everything can be public. Yeah. Look, the standard in search and seizure cases is uh, your reasonable expectation of privacy. And that's an objective standard. So it means it's not your specific 
expectation of what should be private and what isn't, but what a reasonable person would believe. Well, if a whole new generation has come up who think, yeah, kind of let it all hang out and put it all on the internet, it doesn't really matter, uh, that that's not just affecting their choices. It's affecting the choice of the entire society in terms of what is fair game. There, or is at least yeah. raising a problem, yeah. which is um, it may be okay to let it all hang out on social media, but maybe we don't do that when it comes to search and seizure law. Maybe we now have two concepts of privacy where we've always had kind of a unitary sense because the, the, the world of privacy is being sliced and diced in ways that nobody foresaw. That's exactly right. And these are tough questions that you want people who have grown up with some familiarity, some comfort, some sophistication in the digital world to help decide. And if the bench is dominated by people who are, um, you know, been there for 30, 40, 50 years because they have life tenure, I think that interferes with the natural renewal, refreshing of our understanding of the law. And I don't think, uh, so I, I can, I would imagine some people might say correctly that uh, the reason why the federal judiciary is so often upheld as a model for independence and the rule of law is that it's dependent upon a lifetime appointment. And that is true, but you can get the same effect, in my view, if you have a 20-year term. Yeah. You're, you're not, I don't think you're going to lose the independence of the judiciary, the selfless dedication to the rule of law that lifetime appointment gives if you give it in increments of 20 years. I just don't think that's a real threat. Yeah, no, I, I think this is one of those rare moments where I agree with you. <laughs> mm. There have been three so far. Yeah, this has yeah. been a good day for us. Well, with three agreements in one, one show, I think we should quit while we're ahead. Not forever, just for today. <laughs> just for today. Enjoy your night, Jeff. Okay. Enjoy your night, TJ. Okay, that concludes the first episode of Let's Talk About Something Else with Judge James Donato and Pastor Jeff Bleich. Be sure to stay tuned for future episodes of this program and, of course, your usual weekly appellate reports that will continue to air each Friday. I'm Brian Cardell. Speak to you next time. Mm-hmm.